everyone. Welcome back to Bushwalker's Diary. This is Season 2, Episode 5. I'm really excited today to introduce you all to one of my very good friends, Linda Payu. She is not only an avid bushwalker, but she is also a canyoner, bike rider, and also loves to travel around the world. So let's hear from Linda. Welcome to Bushwalker's Diary, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for our audience, uh, I would like to start to uh, from the question, how did you get into the outdoor activities to start with? Um, I first got into the outdoor stuff after my marriage broke up. So um, my our friends turned out to be his friends, not our friends. So I was in a quite a, a lonely place. I'd um, lost touch with my friends from before the marriage and I uh, need to get out and meet some people. And I thought, well, I've always enjoyed uh, family picnics and things as a kid. So I'll join a bushwalking club as a way of getting some exercise, meeting some people. Because it was, I had um, a young child and it was pretty much, you know, find something that was an interest that I could do or join parents without partners, which just sounded appalling. Um, You know, just a bunch of divorced people trying to find their next partner wasn't really my thing. I actually wanted to get out and and have some fun. So, yeah, I decided I would look for a bushwalking club. I did a a day walk with a a walking club, just a a normal street walking club, and some really weird, risky stuff went on there, and I figured out they didn't know what they were doing. So, yeah, did my research, found a bushwalking club, uh, which was well which was Bankstown Bushwalking Club, which is how I met you through that club, um, and then slowly started, I was very unfit, slowly started with some simple day walks, which almost killed me, and met all these really cool people who travelled the world, um, rock climbed, canyoned, didn't even know what that was, caved. I was like, I've got to, I've got to do all these other things now. Because, um, you know, I want to get I want to get paddling, I want to learn how to abseil, I want to, and, and it was just a whole world got opened up to me. So, yeah, it was accidental really. Didn't mean to do it. <laughs> wow, I did not know that about you, Linda. Thanks for sharing that deep insight. So for our audience purpose, I met Linda, as uh, she mentioned, through Bushwa- Bankstown Bushwalking Club. And uh, I'm now I'm also a member of uh bushwalking committee in the club as well as the abseiling committee thanks to linda what kind of activities you get up to because you did mention you saw people doing abseiling canyoning uh, paddling so what are the things you normally do these days Apart Um, from COVID restriction. (laughs) Yeah. Let's pretend COVID doesn't exist because if we were talking about that time, I'd be riding my bike within 5Ks of home and doing half of Walleye Creek. Um, And that's all I can do at the moment. But, yeah, uh, the sorts of things that I've taken up as a result of getting into the outdoors, obviously, you know, day walks to start with, but... um, I started very, very unfit, simple day walks on tracks, and then I started getting into um, more challenging stuff with a big off-track and a navigation component, which I absolutely adore. So anything that involves having a vague um, objective in mind and um, some crazy people to go out with, that's kind of my, my big thing. Um 
or they're the walks I love best or finding new places. It's just, just really cool. I do like my overnighters and my extended walks and I'm, uh, I have been semi-retired for a few years now. So we've been doing some longer walks, which is great. Um, Another personal challenge when I started off was I was extremely afraid of heights. So I learned how to abseil just to overcome that fear and then ended up discovering canyons and caves. And I, I was addicted to canyoning for quite a few years. I still do an occasional canyon, but not like I used to um, because my partner enjoys the walks more. So we do more of that. I do do a little bit of kayaking, but I don't own my own kayaking. So that's kind of if I can get a hired one. Or borrowed one. Um, oh, I learned how to ski. That was my midlife crisis somewhere in my mid-40s. It was either get a motorbike or learn how to ski. And I chose skiing and I don't regret that. That's really cool fun. Um, just couldn't couldn't afford it and didn't have the time before that phase in my life. But yeah. I'm just trying to think what else do I do? Um Oh, look, I indoor climb for fitness, but I'm the world's worst, worst climber. I've, I have done a few um, outdoor climbs. I, I did Sweet Dreams, which is like your classic, mostly grade 14, a classic multi-pitch for beginners. I really enjoyed that, but I'm not a very good climber. You've seen my body. It's not the body of a climber. It's the body of a, a strong woman, but not a climber. Um, too, too much of a backside on the thing, really. Uh, I'm just trying to think, yeah, multi-day walks, exploratory stuff. Oh, travel. Travel has become a thing. I just love my travel. Uh, we like doing longer trips. We like going off the beaten track. Um, I know you and I have both been to the Dolomites. I do like the concept of walking from refugio to refugio with five euro for half a litre red wine at the end of the day. Um, I think that's enormously civilised. Uh, I've done some of the longer walks in Australia, some of the more common common ones like the Great Ocean Walk and Hinchinbrook and those sorts of things, Katoomba and Mittagong. Um, yeah, trekking in Nepal. I'm in love with Nepal. Um, that was another, that was a career crisis I had. I had a job I hated and um, I needed to run away because my boss was an idiot. Um, so I, I needed to run away and leave him in the lurch, which I did, and went to Nepal for five weeks and um, did my first trek in the Everest region, learn a hell of a lot about trekking and how not to do it on that trek. Um, and then after that, found my own guide um, through a bit of a weird experience I had um, yeah, randomly met some people, got a recommendation for a guide who has subsequently become a great friend and we put some marvellous trips together. Um, again, out of the way places. So, uh, yeah, can't, can't tell you how much I adore Nepal. Um, we did a thing called the Tamang Heritage Trail, uh, which just went to a completely off the, off the beaten track sort of area near Langtang. We followed it up with Langtang. Um, went to see traditional honey gathering on a different trip. Um, been to Mustang uh, for the TG Festival, which I love. So Nepal's a real passion. Um, and then more recently, as we've had more money and more time, uh, we did a, a six-week road trip around Canada and then spent three weeks, uh, did the Inside Passage and spent a couple of weeks in Alaska and the very last trip that we did was um, in Peru and um, 
So that was, we did one trek in Peru and the rest was pretty much sightseeing. Um, but we went to some out-of-the-way places, which, again, was good. We don't like tourists. We don't like the crowds and we don't like the commercialism. We like meeting the locals and just doing local stuff when we travel. Um, although we did the full-on tourist thing and went to the Galapagos as well, which was just an amazing experience. So, yeah, travel some more recent outdoors thing I've taken up. Um, and when we travel, yeah, like I said, we like to, to get into the outdoors in the same way as the locals do. Yeah. Wow. So that's all I do. Oh, yeah, that's kind of it. Every time life has thrown some challenges at you, you've turned them around and got something even better out of it. That's one pers perspective. Or the other perspective is, no, I've run away and had fun instead of feeling challenged. I, I really I, admire that attitude. <laughs> I think that's quite healthy, by the way. If you have a problem, run away from it and just do something positive <laughs> until you're up for coping. Yeah. Well, sometimes you can't change the situation itself, so it's good to change your surroundings and the perspective you look at it. Yeah. And travel is one of the best things because I totally relate to you uh, and I'm in love with Dolomites. And uh, as I hear, you also love Nepal. So my next question would be if you can share some tales from your travel, either Nepal or some other countries, looks like you have hiked a lot of places, you have traveled a lot of places. So for our audience, probably, if you don't mind sharing some of your stories. Oh, I don't know where to start. I really don't. Um, <laughs> I seriously don't know where to start because there's so many stories and I'm more used to, to telling my stories sort of sitting around the campfire. Um, used to be with a port in my hand, but these days it's more likely to be schnapps. So, yeah, um, this, I, I think I'm going to say no to answering that question because they're not my stories, they're collective stories. You want to hear those stories, you've got to come out and camp with us and the people who are on the trip can just give each other a hard time and talk about what we did. Oh, that sounds like a lovely invite, uh, Linda. I have to sign up for most of your trips then. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Because um, the more, the merrier. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I do enjoy the stories around the campfire, which I'm really deeply missing at the moment. We can't get out, but hopefully yeah. soon. And, and look, the people that I do these trips with and the people you'll meet through the club, there's a lot of people who've been to a lot of places and just some done some totally amazing things that blow me away. Um, and you, you'll never, they'll be the quietest, most unassuming people that you're going to get a real shock when you find out what some people have done. So you, you've said you think I've done a lot. Well, no, I haven't done that much. I've had some really cool experiences along the way um, and I've done a bit, but you just wait till some of the others start telling you what they've done. <laughs> they're inspirational like it's it's not a competition to outdo each other by any means but we kind of yeah and that's what I feel outdoor activities are all about you know you meet like-minded people you mm. inspire each other and you have this set of amazing souls sitting together around campfire where you feel like you relate to that kind yeah. of community and look, you so, meet some really eccentric people too, which is kind of awesome. So when I first started um, doing some of those harder walks, the club had this, this group of older men in it um, and they just did the most fantastic trip. So I'm going to get into the realms of, of a story about a trip, even though I said I wouldn't now. But they used to... Um, 
they used to do trips their own way and they used to navigate their own way. And yes, they did occasionally carry a map and they even bought a GPS at one point when they first came out, but they pretty they also decided it was a bit of a waste of time and effort. Um, and they used to do your old school navigation of the sort that people did before areas were mapped. And they used they taught me so much about bushcraft following ridge lines, picking the terrain, selecting a route. Uh, we would seriously stand around um, the car bonnet in the morning and it'd be some untracked bit of wilderness and they'd say, well, we're going to go here and we're going to go there. And Pete met a guy in a pub who met a bloke once who had a donkey and they took supplies to a farm and we think that's the flat where the farm was. So we're going to go look for those ruins. So we'll now walk for eight hours through untracked bush to get there. And they do that without referencing the map and pop up in the campsite they'd planned. Um, wow. And I, gosh, I learned a lot from those guys, but they had all these sayings. They used to say things like a bloke's got to do what a bloke's got to do and six good blokes and a piece of rope can go anywhere. And that was how they did it. They were a real team. And that word bloke, it wasn't gender specific. A lot of people would get offended because they thought it was, but a bloke was a state of mind. And um, we used to call, there were probably a core group of four to six of them on each of these um, harder walks. And they were into lightweight camping uh, before that was a thing. So all these lightweight people with their high-tech gear, they just not a patch on the blokes. So the blokes used to do things like they had a couple of tarps and depending on how many blokes were going, they'd take one or the other tarp and you know they just they just do these insane things um but really do them with skill and finesse and they were just marvelous and the walks we used to do were sort of unbelievably good um and wow. i don't know anyone much who goes out and walks at that level in um anymore for a whole host of reasons walking's become a bit too civilized um, in the last few years. And I do worry about younger walkers because uh, there's there's now a mindset where people are following GPS plots and, and defined walks as if that's a thing and, and it seems to be constraining people's adventures. And that's incredibly sad. So it looks like you have seen a change in the walking areas, the people who uh, walk and the etiquettes of walking and I feel like you worry about it too. How is the change affecting the nature, you think? Um, look, that change in attitudes to walking, it's, it's kind of, in some ways it means people aren't getting into the more remote areas anymore, which means there's less human intervention there, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But on the other hand, it makes it, really, really hard to keep tracks open and that sort of thing, or not so much tracks, but to keep um, negotiable routes um, negotiable even. So, you know, there are places that have always been difficult to push through the scrub on, uh, you know, bits of the Butterwangs or places like Tewilla Plateau up near Canangra and that sort of thing. They've never been easy, but if no one goes there because everyone's following a nice well-worn track on a GPS plot, those um, incredibly difficult to push through routes will become impossible. And certainly more so after the bushfires with all the sapling regrowth. Um, mm -hmm. 
been to a couple of places where the tracks are going to go. I've heard that it's like that on um, bits of the K2K, certainly when we were down in the Butterwangs a couple of months back, um, we tried to uh, get from um, the eastern side of Quilties over into Hidden Valley and the regrowth was really, really bad. And if people don't go through that or some of the other tracks in the Butterwangs or the negotiable routes in the Butterwangs, then we'll lose the access to areas, which worries me a lot. That's a good point, Linda, because I think bushfires cleared quite a few of these areas. They've changed the nature and, of course, the human interaction with the nature is quite important as well. So mm. hopefully more people can get involved uh, into off-track exploration of our nature in the wilderness a bit more, I hope. Yes. And hopefully we can plan more activities and as part of the club, I think you guys also take the initiative of even introducing the new generation to the bush, which is a great initiative, I feel. We try to. But I just want to clear up one misconception there. You said bushfires clear the bush and they actually don't. Um, people think they do. Uh, but what happens is they clear the bush that was there and then the new growth comes up and it's usually far, far denser than the original oh, growth. So, yeah, they actually have the reverse effect, but the whole world thinks that they clear the bush. But if you've walked in an area that has been burnt severely recently um, versus hasn't been burnt for ages, you'll learn that it's the opposite in terms of being able to get through that country. That reminds me because every area after bushfire was gone, at the very beginning it looked clear and then it had a lot of weed as well. Yeah, Something exactly. we don't enjoy. Yeah, no, you're correct. Thanks for yeah. reminding me of yeah. that. I've learned <laughs> that the hard way too. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. navigation is going to be a real challenge for people and then that trend for people to follow well-defined tracks and GPS plots. I think it's just going to amplify that trend because it's going to be too hard to get into those other places. And there's a, and of course, if people like me don't go out there and teach younger walkers in the same way as the blokes taught me, or I walked for a while with CMW as well, and I learned a lot from those guys, particularly about the Butterwangs, because I walked with people who'd been part of the early exploration of the Butterwangs and the finding some of the routes that people take for granted now. Yeah. yeah. But I, mean, I, have, I haven't done many walks there. I've only done a couple. And I do have very vague memory from my first bushwalk. And it was, I had a lot of holes in my clothes. <laughs> yeah, you've been to the Butterwangs. Yeah, I've, I've done a few walks down there where I've deliberately worn clothes that I know I will feel happy to throw in the bin when I get home. I wish I knew that because I wore my new T-shirt and it had like holes everywhere possible. <laughs> Yeah, no, I have come off walks many a time back in my sort of more gung-ho hard walking days and walks in canyons and I've just come home and gone, well, that can all go in the bin now and off it goes. <laughs> so I used to walk a lot in my dad's old shirts and that sort of thing. So it's funny, you go on those online forums, oh, you know, what fancy brand of technical shirt do you recommend? And it's like, well, you're obviously not doing hard walks because your shirts are still wearable after your walks. <laughs> I, I, I hear you there, Linda. Yeah. Thank you.
hear that a lot of your friends gave you toy helicopters on your 50th birthday. Sorry to mention the age there, but um, I was very curious. Um, it has to be a story behind that. Would you be able to share it with our audience? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share. Um, I got a reputation as a leader in the club for a while and it was just purely bad luck. So what happened was um, I led a walk and there was an older gentleman on the walk, fit guy and all the rest, but um, had an underlying heart condition he didn't know about. So he had a heart attack on my walk. Uh, and this was in the days before um, PLBs and that sort of thing. So I got to run out up uh, Govets and run up to the, because uh, we had cars parked at the top of Govets and we were camped near Blue Gum, not in Blue Gum, but in, on the chopper pad on the other side. Uh, so I got to run up from camp and, and organise um, the ambulance through the National Parks Office and and they sent a, you know, they sent a chopper to get him out and, and he survived my walk, which was good. Um, so that was all fine. And then uh, not too long later on a different walk, one of um, the people on the walk unfortunately had a tree fall on them and break their leg. Um, on that particular walk I stayed and did the splinting and, and we sort of did what we had to do to, to sort of maintain that casualty and two other guys ran out again in the days before PLBs and they ran out and another chopper came and that was all a bit of a drama and that was down on the Kaumung so I think you can understand that was pretty remote. So that was another chopper rescue. Um, so, you know, I started to get a reputation as a leader through no fault of my own, I might add. So that was all well and good. Anyway, on my first Nepal trip, and, and I think I mentioned earlier I learned how not to do a Nepal trip, and that's with one of the big trekking companies. I completely don't recommend that. Um, but I was uh, doing a trek up to Gokio Lakes and Tangbashe, so that's the, the Everest region, and um, they warned us about hape. And I woke up in the middle of the night with a very nasty cough. And we were at Machermo, which is a place with um, a medical post. So my guide, I said to the guide, I don't like this cough. And he said, no, I don't like it either. So they, he and I went up to the medical post and the, medic, the doctor there listened to me and we said, look, is it hape? Because if it's hape, I've got to go down. And the doctor said, oh, no, you've just got bronchitis. You're right to go up. So we continued up to Gokio Lakes. I didn't have bronchitis, I had hape. So wow. I became an emergency medical evacuation from Gokio um, and I almost died. It was pretty dramatic. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting experience that I never want to repeat. Um, so, yeah, I got medevaced in one of those big white Russian choppers, you know, the, the famous Everest ones. Um, oh, right. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, I have some interesting videos. One of the people in our group took of the chopper not getting lift when it took off and it's skimming across the surface of the lake until it got far enough out horizontally that the land dropped away under it. So then it had lift because it could go lower and the air was denser. I'm really glad I was too out of it to realise what I was experiencing at that time. 
So I've really I... seen that in the movies when the chopper, it's the air is so thin that the chopper can't work. <laughs> well, well, I've got a video of me in that chopper. <laughs> And like I said, so glad I didn't know. Anyway, so I came back to Australia after that trip um, and after, you know, discovering, uh, meeting someone down in Chitwan who knew about this wonderful guide because I thought, I've got to go back. I've got an unfinished business here, but I'll go on my own terms with my own guide, with my own group, with my own plan. So that was a plan that I put into place while I was lying in the clinic after the after the trip and then I just had to find guide which I very randomly and luckily did anyway so then I came back and um so that was the October of 2007 so I came back and I got my fitness back and I canyon season was coming at that point I was still addicted I had no restraint or control when it came to canyons so I was back into my you know canyoning at least one canyon off and two every weekend mode and midweek if I could get time off work as well. So I was quite sort of addicted at that stage. Anyway, uh, went out and we did a, a bit of a base camp out at Baku's Swamp and we did Galar on the first day and we had something else planned for the second. Anyway, um, I was halfway through the canyon and um, slipped on a down climb and fell and broke my leg. So that was interesting. Did the second half of the canyon with a broken leg and got winched down at the end of the canyon. And, um, yeah, so that was another chopper incident. So when I had my 50th birthday, all my so-called friends and uh, all the ones from bushwalking anyway um, presented me with a toy helicopter. <laughs> it's like, you've got your toys now. <laughs> Uh, and my lovely daughter-in-law um, organised a cake for me and decorated it mm -hmm. um, with an abseiling door of the Explorer and helicopter on it as well. <laughs> Actually, when I asked you this question, I did not expect this kind of adventurous and awesome reply. I'm glad everybody's fine. You're fine and all the risky, to be honest. But at the same time, it makes a hell of a story. Oh, uh, look, and th there are more stories. Like I said, you need alcohol for the other stories and a campfire. <laughs> What's your uh, poison? Uh, well, it depends on the circumstance. So in, in civilization, it's definitely red wine. Mm -hmm. And um, like the whole lockdown situation, overjoyed to discover we could do click and collect from our favourite wine store. Um, but out in the bush, typically it will be schnapps and pear schnapps is my favourite schnapps. Um, the other thing I really like as a bush drink is your Dom Benedictine, but that's become a really hard thing to source. So that's Oh, wow. I've never tried schnapps in the bush. I've got into... Um... Uh, yeah, whiskey, different kind of American honey and oh, um, drinks. Yeah. He reckons it's a vaccine against COVID, that American honey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been drinking at home a lot then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'll be right. <laughs> it's nice to have this podcast during this time, actually. It kind of brings a lot of nice memory, I, have, I must admit. It does, doesn't it?
And, and what do you find most rewarding about your walking or canyoning and all the outdoor stuff you do? Um, I Two things, it's the people and the friendships. Like I've got lifelong friends who I've trusted with my life and they trust me with their life and that's a real bond. You don't get friendships like that out there in the real world with normal people. There's a depth and there's an intimacy. Like you share a tent with someone and, you know, you don't really have secrets. <laughs> so and, and that builds a level of trust and, and strength in a relationship that's just awesome. And like I said, I've also met so many of the people I've met and that you've met but you don't know it yet. They've just done some amazing stuff. So you get to live vicariously through them as well. Um, the other thing I find super rewarding is that it makes you tough. And I don't mean physically tough, although it does do that too. It makes you mentally tough because you've got to be able to cope with adversity and hardship and push yourself. Um, and you learn what's super important. So being warm and dry is much more important than the brand of the clothing you wear and that sort of thing. So you, it helps you set healthier priorities in life. So, you know, it's all about, you know, just taking care of those survival type needs, you know, your shelter, your food, your water. And yeah, in it, that attitude spills over into the rest of your life and you don't sweat about um, the sort of rubbish that gets other people really stirred up. So, yeah, I suppose so that's what I find most rewarding is um, the relationships and the mental toughs it gives you. And also it forces you to stay fit and healthy. So I'm going to be 60 in a few months and I compare myself to my old friends from school days and I can just do all this really awesome stuff still. And my bushwalking friends are all like that as well but my friends who aren't as fit and don't exercise as much and don't push their bodies, they've got health issues left, right and centre. So that's the other thing it's given me as I've grown older. It's kept me healthier and fitter. Yeah. You are an inspiration, Linda, and I hope uh, people like you keep the tradition in the club and around you going because I, I find even while talking to you now or every time we chat, I always feel super inspired since we connected. And I would like uh, to ask you if you have any advice for younger women uh, who like outdoor and how can they enjoy the life full of adventure like you do? Um, just do it. Uh, so when I started bushwalking, I had a two-year-old kid. I was a single mum. I had no money and a big mortgage. Uh, as you know, my son probably would have been three or four by then. Anyway, not to worry. Anyway, he was preschool-aged. And I just did it. I didn't have enough money to buy proper gear. I just did it. I didn't have fancy clothes. I just did it. It took me a long while to buy my first pair of hiking boots because I just couldn't afford them. And I just went out with whatever I could find and just did it. Uh, it's the other thing too is to, to sort of watch and learn from the people around you that you're doing stuff with. Um, that's how you pick up all your skills. Uh, kind of follow your instincts. So if you think someone's an idiot and they're doing dumb stuff, um, read the situation and, and maybe don't learn from those people. But 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, again, and this is what I'm seeing with younger women in online forums, they kind of overcomplicate how to get into it. It's walking is the easiest thing. You put one foot in front of the other and go, and, yes, your pack might be uncomfortable and you mightn't be particularly fit, but that'll you'll sort all of that in time. Um, I was going to say stay within your limits, but maybe not do that. Maybe just go a safe distance above what you're capable of. Um, yeah, keep it really simple and, and don't overcomplicate it and just do it. And if you get the opportunity to do something that sounds a bit interesting, then just do it. Um, the other thing that's great when you're starting out is you, you can be quite um, ignorant about what's involved and that can be helpful sometimes. So I did my first backpack, um, just an overnighter, I made some horrendous mistakes on that. Didn't have enough water, blah, blah, blah. Um, didn't had the wrong sort of pack because it was the only one I could afford and all the rest of it. And then um, my second walk was four days down the Jagungal Wilderness, which was an even bigger debacle. I didn't have proper gear for cold weather. And, and you know what? I loved every minute of both trips. Uh, I survived benefit of hindsight would have enjoyed it more if I'd been more comfortable but you know you keep going and just keep doing it learn from those experiences if you can't afford gear then beg borrow oh, no maybe not steal that's not ethical but you know what I mean you know, just <laughs> don't worry about getting the best of everything don't just go for good enough and be really relaxed about uh yeah how you look how you act Go for, go for the fun of it. Um, the other thing I've noticed, again, in online forums, and I don't know what drives it, but a lot of younger women, oh, yeah, I want to go women's only groups. Well, there's nothing wrong with going women's only. Every so often I used to put on women's only canyons at the beginning of the season because it helped women um, get their confidence levels up. Um, that they could actually canyon without blokes going too quick and, and doing all the rope work and pushing them out of the way. Uh, so I don't mind an occasional women's only trip. But, you know, I found in the outdoors world more than any other facet of my life, women, women and men are equal in the outdoors. Um, we, I'll give you a canyoning example. Most of the blokes I know are much better at the at climbing around a pool and, and that sort of thing. You know, they, they're, they're just, they've got more upper body strength and they're much better at that sort of stuff. So if you get to a point where there's a, a nice deep-looking bit of water and, you know, the blokes will all climb around and women have more body fat as a rule, we'll all jump in and swim it. Hey, we're both doing it the same way, the same thing. We're just doing it in the way that works for our bodies. Um so, yeah, there's there's no reason why a woman can't do anything a man can do. I don't know why some younger women these days think of some outdoor stuff as being sort of more macho and masculine. Um, strong men in the outdoors don't see women that way. Only the weak men in the outdoors do. So my advice to a younger woman is if you're with men who are kind of saying, oh, it's really tough for women, that's a reflection on them not having the strength to do a thing, not a reflection on the ability of women to do it. When I first started walking, I was single, um, carried all my own gear. Um, and 
when I started walking, including the overnights with my son, I just carried his gear as well. You can do it. It hurts, but you can do it. And then one day that kid grows up and they carry some of your gear, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. Don't think because you're a woman you've got to do it any differently. It, anything that makes you think it's got to be different is in your head. You, you just do it. Uh, having said that, you've got to let your hygiene standards lapse a bit and um, generally be prepared to be covered in dirt and dust and blood. And, but that's all part of the fun. And use that first shower and hair wash when you get out feels good. <laughs> I love everything you said, Linda, and I, I'm taking the mantra out of this uh, very, very inspiring talk you just did. Uh, just do it. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Just get out and do it. That's exactly it. That's all you're going to do. I'm quite uh, hyped for this weekend now in spite of food. I'm going to get out and do it. <laughs> I hope our audience, if there are any younger women or people who are not sure how to go about bushwalking or any outdoor activities, I think that's a pretty good start. I remember I asked somebody a long time ago at work, how do I start going about running? He said, just start running. Yeah. And that stuck with me because he said, don't worry about gear, don't worry about clothing and shoes, whatever shoes, you must have some shoes, just start using them and just get out yeah he was right so yeah that really resonates with me everything you said there linda there must be challenges because we are talking about a lot of fun activities but we also talked about chopper um rescues in your case sometimes and I have been involved in one myself so there are always challenges that sometimes we don't talk about when we go outdoor and so for you what do you find most challenging about your outdoor life and how do you deal with it and how do you make your trips happen okay the most challenging thing when I was younger was finding the time for it all so it's finding the time to train to stay fit enough and strong enough um, mm -hmm. for the sorts of trips I like to do um, and even now still like to do. So that was one challenge. And then, you know, getting enough time off work to go and do what you want to do, another challenge. Um, so there was a, a lot of really uh, advanced time management. So when I was working full-time and doing this stuff, um, I would do... I had a routine such that I'd get home from work, I'd go to the gym or go and do whatever my exercise was. My poor son spent most of his childhood doing his homework in the gym. Um, but, you know, he doesn't really complain about that as an adult and it's given him a lifelong exercise habit, so there you go. Uh, and, and then I'd do all my housework and, and my packing and my shopping. Everything would be done during the week so that I had my weekends free to play. And then every so often, often I'd have what I call a crash and burn weekend where I'd just hit the wall with exhaustion and hopefully my son would be at his dad's and I'd just sleep all weekend and catch up. Um, so so there was so there's the time management thing. It used to be a big challenge. Um, more recently uh, I moved into um, freelancing because, you know, I didn't need the full-time money anymore, although I ended up doing okay financially with that. 
Um, and I think I'm going to transition out of freelancing into retirement instead of semi-retirement now, just because I've missed out on too much life in the last few months of the lockdown. I've got some catching up to do. Um, so time, as, as you get move through the phases in your life, how you manage your time and how you prioritise your time changes, but you, you've got to time manage well to do an outdoors life. That was the big challenge. Um, the other challenge for me is um, I still am, but was far, far worse scared of heights, uh, but I love the abseiling. So there's two things that happen there. There's that vertigo feeling of being dragged over the edge and dealing with that incredible panic style of fear that goes with the true fear of heights. So at the same time as you're absolutely terrified, uh, it, it, you're also drawn to, drawn to the, not physically drawn to the edge, but mentally drawn to the edge, um, and you just you can freak yourself out. And I've learnt how to deal with that fear, so I can now, if I need to, you know, scramble quite exposed stuff and that sort of thing. That talk a couple of decades probably to do. And certainly that was why I learned how to abseil in the early days is so I could learn how to deal with the fear of heights that I had because I couldn't even do things like change a light globe. I was too scared to stand on a chair. So learning that mental thing of um, the deep breathing, the forcing yourself to the calm place and all of that, very, very handy thing to, again, a good life skill for, for other situations. Anytime I feel fear, I know how to deal with fear now. Um, yeah. Those are very good tips, Linda, from your own personal experience. And thank you for highlighting how you have coped up, uh, coped with some of the challenges. And I think that's really good for our listeners and even for myself to see how you have uh, overcome some of, of your fears and always these things as you have highlighted always comes handy in your own personal life as well not just outdoor so uh, so thank you so much for sharing all these insights Linda I really appreciate it any plans for your next adventure or once the lockdown is over um, yeah I did have plans but I don't know what they are anymore because there's so much uncertainty. So um, I was going to organise a group to go up to Gibraltar Washpool and do the great walk there. But by the time we come out of lockdown and I catch up with all my family and friends that I haven't been able to see, um, I think we'll be too far into bushfire season and it'll be a bit too warm for that to be a good plan. Um, and after that, I was planning to continue up and visit some family up in Queensland and do the Kalula Great Walk. And again, Queensland aren't going to let us in. So I'm going to defer those plans till next year. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what I'll be doing. So at any given point in time, I have um, a number of um, little headings in one note of things I plan to do and they range from day walks through to overseas trips and I'm forever planning the next adventure. Um, the Probably the first things we'll do will be little short local adventures. we we'll take the grandkids out. So just like I used to walk with my son, um, we do things with the grandkids now, um, take them on little overnight things or the, the, the dead keen abseilers, all three of them. So we'll probably just take them up to the Wadigans and, and, you know, get them to do a little bit of abseiling up there. That's probably one of the first things we'll do. It's not much of an adventure, but it's, it's actually a huge adventure watching them grow. 
oh, what else is there? Oh, there's a little bit of a recce I want to do um, just to see what the, the fires have done around the Erskine Creek area, so go off and do that. Um, Kim and I are talking about what we hope will be our first overseas trip, which will be another trip back to Nepal, but that's very much going to depend on the COVID situation there. We'd love to go back and, and take some of our money and spend it in a country that desperately needs it and have a great time while we're there. But we can only do that if it's safe um, and not just safe for us. But, you know, if we go over there and, and by the time we sit on a plane fully vaccinated as we are, we may well pick up a mild dose of COVID and not know we've got it and then go up to some remote village and kill people. So I need to be comfortable in my own mind that I won't be doing that if we do go back. Um, so, you know, a lot of the overseas stuff that I've got in my list of things to do, there are some ethical considerations with that. Um, I wouldn't mind going to Europe and doing some more walking there. Um, I've got a, a nephew that lives in the UK and I wouldn't mind going over and visiting him and um, doing some walking in Wales as well. For um, I've got a Welsh heritage, so, um, yeah, just experiencing summer Wales really appeals to me. So all of those things are possibilities. But if I go to Wales, I'm going to have to also go, well, I'll have to go to London because that's where my nephew is and I'll have to go to Italy because I love Italy and then all of a sudden that little trip's becoming huge. So I don't know. That's it for next adventures. I don't know which one it'll be other than the abseiling with the grandkids up in the Wadigans is probably the first thing. Yeah, hope uh, we can get out of COVID lockdown soon, Linda, and you get to catch up with your family, which is very important. I know people haven't been able to see their kids and you even have grandkids. Um, and I'm looking forward to actually see you and other members in the club and do some trip together. Yeah. Uh, and I I think this episode is coming to an end, but it's not enough time to talk about all the things I would love to talk to you about. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, I would like to uh, say thank you for attending the podcast and inter giving an interview for all our audience and also for my benefit too, because it's always lovely to catch up with you. And thank you so much. And hopefully I can do another episode with you because it looks like you have so many stories to tell. Look, you probably only get the rest of the stories, like I said, around a campfire with the schnapps. <laughs> I'll bring the schnapps. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Linda. And uh, have a very good evening. Yeah, you too. And I'll see you in the bush. I'll see you in the bush. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Bushwalker's Diary, everyone. This was Season 2, Episode 5. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Linda. And if you have any feedback, please reach out to me through Facebook, Instagram, or via Anchor, the platform where I'm hosting this podcast. Also, I'm always looking for people who I can interview for my podcast, who are into outdoors, whether it's bushwalking, canyoning, any other sport so please do let me know and stay tuned for the next episode goodbye